I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5. You'll need a Bible to follow along, and these brothers have some. If you need a Bible, just get their attention as they make their way to the back, and they'll get you one of those Bibles that's marked for you at 1 Thessalonians 5. It's our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of God's Word, so please accept that from us. 1 Thessalonians 5. My introduction to today's sermon is based on words spoken this past week by the great theologian, Britney Spears. She was talking about how America demands conformity from people, and she said, quote, I feel like our society has always put such an emphasis on what's normal, and to be different is unusual or seen as strange. But as one columnist pointed out, The thing is, Brittany, the whole definition of different is to be unusual or strange. But one can forgive Brittany's confusion since the truth is, in our culture, nonconformity is one of the most conformist values we have. That is, to be like everybody else, you need to try to find a way to be different. Jonah Goldberg in His column said, just turn on the TV and you'll see commercials telling you that you'll be a rebel if you buy this SUV or that sports car. Matthew McConaughey's ads for Lincoln make him seem like a scary drifter on the one hand, who's on a quest to make conformists out of waitresses who work at out-of-the-way diners. BMW just launched an ad appealing to what they called unfollowers bidding those unfollowers to follow their lead straight to the dealership. Audi has a dude foregoing the witness protection program because he can't contemplate being the kind of sellout who drives a normal car. Better to take your chances with the mob than not sit behind the wheel of an Audi. It's ironic that so many people want to be different by pursuing the same thing, being different. Being different in and of itself, just find something to be different from. Christians are called to be different, truly different. But we don't just look for something to be different about and still wind up being the same because everybody's doing it. Rather, Christians are different by their nature, by virtue of who they are, and in turn, they're different in what they do. The Bible calls that holiness. The word holiness holiness means to be set apart, to be distinctive, to be different. And our distinctiveness is not based on race, on politics, on ethnicity, on tribe, on shared victimhood, or whatever. It's based on the fact that we are God's people. It's not based on natural differences, but on one supernatural difference, that we've been born again and adopted into his family. And God, in turn, enhances this distinctiveness by what he does for his people. In fact, if you have the outline that's inserted in your program, if you have that out, please take a look. If you don't, please pull that out so that you can follow along with the message. And you'll note there that all three of the major points begin with God and they end with his people. Because God actively enhances this distinctiveness by what he does for his people in giving us information that we now 
that we know and we believe and apply versus the non-Christian who refuses to believe what he knows of God and so fails to learn more. Today, as we continue our series in the book of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see further what we saw last week. How, in the words of chapter 4 and verse 13, we are not like the rest of mankind who have no hope, but distinctive, different, because God has made us and is making us that way. Let's bow and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for gathering us now. It is you who has gathered us by your sovereign hand, working through your providence in the affairs of our world so that we have the health, we have the freedom, we have the desire to be here. And so we thank you for now gathering us. We ask you to quiet our hearts, focus our minds so that we can be attentive to your word and open to applying it so that we can better glorify you this week. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I say in that outline, first of all, that God protects his people. God protects his people. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, last week we saw that the Thessalonians wanted more information on something that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this book, something he had probably introduced during the short time, not more than two to three months, that he was with them namely on the subject of the rapture. And they wondered about their loved ones in Christ who had already died. And we saw last week at the end of chapter 4 that he gave them comfort by informing them that the dead in Christ will be raptured to him along with those who are alive. And now, starting in chapter 5, Paul's answering another related question they had about when these end-time events would happen. And he tells them that they already have what they need because one of the ways that God protects his people is what I, is with what I say in the outline. He delivers us from ignorance. He delivers us from ignorance. When verse 1 speaks of times and seasons, those are the Greek words chronos and kairos. And they were well-known words describing the end times from two different perspectives. Times, or chronos, refers to dates, that is calendar time. And seasons, and kairos, has to do with the character or quality of a given period of time. So the signs that will accompany these events that are to come. And about those dates and seasons, those times and seasons, Paul says he really shouldn't have to write because he had taught them that the rapture was imminent. It could happen at any time. So we don't have dates. And for the rest of what's going to happen after the rapture, you won't be around for. In fact, in verse 2, he says, you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And they know it very well because Paul had taught them about it. But also because the day of the Lord, that phrase, the day of the Lord, is an important subject that's frequently spoken of in Scripture. The day of the Lord is used 19 times in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. It's used four times in the New Testament. This is one of those occurrences. When our passage says that day will come like a thief, it's echoing information they already had from the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. 
The prophet Joel said, the day of the Lord is coming like a thief. That is, the day of the Lord is something that's uninvited and unannounced, so no one knows when it's going to happen, just like no one knows when a thief is going to break in. And in addition to already knowing that the day of the Lord will come uninvited and unannounced, they also had reason to know that it's going to come unexpectedly. Look at verse 3. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. This, too, was spoken of in the first part of the Bible hundreds of years earlier through the prophet Ezekiel. The Lord spoke against those who prophesy about the day of the Lord, saying peace when there is no peace. And he says that's going to be like the labor pains of a pregnant woman. Just as a pregnant mother knows labor pains are coming but doesn't know when, so too we know the day of the Lord is coming, but we don't know when. So putting those two metaphors together, John Stott says we can say that Christ's coming will be first sudden and unexpected like a burglar in the night and then sudden and unavoidable like labor at the end of pregnancy. In the first case, there will be no warning. And in the second, there will be no escape. God protects, though, his people by protecting us, delivering us from ignorance, telling us what it is we need to know. He's done that in his word. I say in your outline as well, he delivers us not just from ignorance, but from wrath. He delivers us from wrath. That phrase, the day of the Lord, that's used in verse 2, it's not referring to a single day, not a 24-hour period in which certain things are going to happen. Rather, it's using the word day to refer to what it will be like, what things will happen and what kinds of things will happen rather than precisely how long they're going to take. So it's using day like we do when we say something like back in the day which refers to what it was like back then. And of those 19 times that the day of the Lord is used in the Old Testament prophets, it always refers to judgment. Either a judgment of God that occurred in the lifetime of the prophet or pointing to a time of future judgment. The Bible teaches that there are two remaining periods in which this is going to happen in the future. One that's going to occur during what's called the tribulation period that starts immediately after the rapture that we saw last week at the end of chapter 4. And then another that occurs at the end of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom, when history is over and God creates a new heaven and a new earth. The apostle Peter spoke of that day of the Lord. In Second Peter 3, the day of the Lord, again, will come like a thief. But he says the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So this is a term that refers to times of judgment throughout history, not just one specific time, but the important thing for us and in this passage is that this future judgment that God pours out in his wrath is not something that will apply to us. Because, I want you to notice, there's a pronoun switch between verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 speaks of you, or by extension, us. 
you, us, not needing to be informed. But verse 3 says the day during the tribulation will come upon them and they will not escape. Not you, us. We also know that the judgment of the day of the Lord during the tribulation will not apply to us. Because notice what verse 4 says. But you, brothers and sisters, notice the but you in contrast to they and them. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. That word surprise is often translated overtake. And I think that will give you a clearer understanding of what Paul's saying here. If you put that word in, the New American Standard uses translates it that way brothers and sisters you are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you like a thief you're not the people who are going to be part of this it's not going to overtake you the darkness in verse four is not being in the dark versus being in the know but rather it's being spiritually alive versus being spiritually dead you're not in the darkness that is you're spiritually alive Jesus used the same kind of metaphor for those who are spiritually alive in John chapter 8. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this time will not overtake you. It will not come upon you because you're not the objects of God's judgment. You are in the light. That is, you are born again. You are spiritually alive. You're not dead in the spiritual darkness of sin. And as a result of that, verse 6 We'll come back to verse 5 in a moment. But verse 6 says, So then, let us not be like others. You see, friends, this is calling us and reminding us that we're different. We're different in a bunch of ways. We're to be holy, distinctive. So then, in your life now, be, let us not be like others. That is, these facts that unbelievers will undergo judgment, but we will be rescued should make a difference in how we live now. This knowledge should be an incentive to live distinctively as Christians. But since we will not experience the judgments of that coming time, then how, in fact, does it serve as a motivation for how we're supposed to live now? And that's what I have in the second point. God protects his people and... God prods his people. God prods his people. Uh, I should put this on the screen for you, shouldn't I? Because you're all going, what was that? How do you spell that? That's P-R-O-D-S. Yeah, no problem. And I do that so the person next to you doesn't have to prod you to stay awake, all right? Now, in verse 4, who is being spoken of shifts back from the world of unbelievers, the they and them of verse 3, to you and by extension us in verses 4 and 5. Again, verse 4. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you like a a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. This is not you, Christian. We don't grieve like those who have no hope, we were told in chapter 4 and verse 13, and we do not live like those who have no hope. We are not like them, and we don't act like them. 
in reminding us us of this contrast between Christians and non-Christians, God prods his people to, I say in the outline, remember our identity. When verse 5 speaks of children of light and children of day, it's literally sons of light and sons of day. In the Bible, when it uses that phrase, sons of, often refers to a characteristic or a source of that characteristic. And this is as opposed to those who do not know Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says, you formerly, before you came to Christ, were sons of disobedience. The characteristic of your life was disobedience before you came to Christ. This phrase, son of, I've explained this at other times, but you'll see it used in the Bible, for example, of the sons of thunder, James and John. They were nicknamed that because they were characterized by characteristics of thunder, loud, boisterous, unpredictable. You see, friends, we all live out of a sense of identity. What you believe about yourself will determine how you see yourself and in turn will determine how you live. That's why it's so important to preach the gospel to yourself regularly so that you don't see yourself as better or worse than you are, but rather see yourself accurately as the recipient of God's grace in Christ so that you have the security to live confidently in that grace despite your struggles and sins and failures. One author, paraphrasing and expanding on something that C.S. Lewis said, wrote this. The gospel leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone. And yet at the same time, I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. You see, the gospel makes a difference in how you see yourself. And in turn, that makes a difference in how you live. Because Christian living arises out of Christian thinking. Knowing that we are better off than unbelievers should make us better in terms of how we behave. Better than those who don't know Christ. And better than we were yesterday. So God prods his people with statements like this in scripture and throughout his word. To remember our identity. And then I say in your outline as well to act on our identity. So then, verse 6. Let us not be like others who are asleep. But let us be awake and sober. Since you are sons and daughters of light and day, then this is how you should behave. When it says awake, it means watchful, being conscientious. Being children of the light, Christians should not engage in the nighttime activities of darkness. Those in the darkness are asleep to God. They're unaware of what's happening in the world and they're unresponsive to the call of the gospel. The children of light, in contrast, are to be awake to God's plan and alive to his calling. The Bible provides a number of illustrations of believers who have fallen asleep, who become dull. 
You think of the three disciples of Jesus who were summoned by him to watch and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus returned and he found them what? Sleeping. And he said to them, could you not watch with me one hour? Christians are to be watchful during these significant events of our times. One commentator has asked, are we to be obliviously prayerless as the great work of the gospel goes forth today? Should we not be watching and praying for missionaries, church planters, parents raising Christian children, evangelists reaching their neighbors, and Christian leaders trying to stand for truth in our society? Should we not similarly be praying to God about the decline of our culture and the advance of sinful tendencies that the Bible abhors? When it comes to watchfulness and prayer, the evidence today suggests that many Christians are asleep, hardly responsive to the spiritual challenges of our time. And Jesus warned when he approached those sleeping disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. There's a second example in the life of Samson, who lost his strength as his hair was cut in the night. Samson had once been a mighty foe of the Philistine Philistine army. But he took his rest and he made his peace with the world around him, settling to the arms of a Philistine named Delilah who betrayed him. Samson's slumber cannot be blamed on Delilah. Delilah, however, he put himself to sleep spiritually by violating his covenant with the Lord. And once asleep, both spiritually and literally, he awoke to his danger too late, realizing only then that he had lost all that he had had spiritually through his alliance with the world. How many Christians today are asleep to the influences of popular culture? So that, like Samson, we're prisoners to worldly thinking and acting and we lose our usefulness to the cause of Christ. There's a third example in the parable that Jesus gave of the tares and the wheat. A man sowed good seed in his field, but Jesus said, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And just like that, in the tolerant spirit that grips the church today, there's a little doctrinal vigilance over our churches and our ministries. Christians are asleep to the threat of an active enemy who seeks to undermine and infiltrate the works of Christ's kingdom so that we squander the gains given to us by God and we lack the spiritual power to prevail in dangerous times. Charles Spurgeon lamented this, those who ought to have been watchmen and to have guarded the field, instead they slept, and so the enemy had ample time to enter and scatter tares among the wheat. When Paul says that Christians should not sleep as others do, he notes that sleeping is the normal state of the unbelieving world. Insensitive to the warnings of God's wrath and the offer of God's salvation in the gospel. One author writes, however wide awake they fancy themselves to be, however knowing and wise they are really as to all highest things, things of the soul of eternity and of God in a state of slumber, of habitual, deep, lethargic sleep. They are alike insensible to the obligation of present duty and secure as to the approach of danger. So I ask you, friend, I don't know everyone here. I ask you whether or not you are asleep, slumbering in the blissful foolishness of unbelief, 
If you are, the Bible offers you examples not only of temporal loss, not only of things that are lost in time and and temporarily, but rather of eternal doom in God's coming judgment. The Bible speaks of an enemy of God's people who was sleeping in his tent when a man came in and drove a spike through his skull. Judges chapter 4. Yet those who cry out to God for mercy will be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, delivered, rescued. The prophet Jonah slept in the hold of the ship while the tempest raged outside. For his hardness of heart toward God, Jonah was thrown overboard to die beneath the waves. God had mercy on the prophet by sending the great fish to bring him to rescue. If you're now asleep to your need of the gospel, God's word and the prayers of Christ's people provide the only hope that you will be saved by coming to him in faith. And you can do that today. And we'll give you time to do that at the end of our message. Awake, in verse 6 then, refers to the actions, that kinds of actions were to take. Vigilance, not slumber. But then they're sober in verse 6. It refers to the attitude that accompanies those actions. And both of those are illustrated in verse 7. Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Even the physical acts of sleep and drunkenness, the opposite of being sober, this drunkenness, take place at night. So these should not be the spiritual characteristics of those who belong to the day and light. So this application is a companion to the previous one. Since Christians belong to the day, they shouldn't be characterized by practices that take place during the night. And among those nighttime practices is a lifestyle that's inebriated with early earthly pleasures and sin. Underlining Paul's teaching here is the realization that there are certain kinds of conduct which are appropriate enough in the sons of night, but very unbefitting of Christians. Most obvious here, and he gives the example, is being drunk from alcohol or drugs along with related forms of sensual revelry. It's all inexcusable for a follower of Jesus. A Christian student once gave in to his roommate, and he went out drinking and carousing. In the morning, he was saddened to discover that even his unbelieving friends expressed their disgust at what he had done. After all, he was supposed to be a Christian. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes spiritually dead unbelievers as, quote, following the course of this world, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and so identifying themselves as, quote, children of wrath. But the children of light, who are, according to verse 9 in our passage, destined to obtain salvation, should not embrace a similar drunken pattern of life. And friends, we should understand that this call to sober living is more than a call to abstain from drunkenness or drugs. Today, this calling extends to the whole realm of entertainments of which Christians may imbibe, including movies and music that promote a sensual, self-absorbed lifestyle and they glorify values that are contrary to God's word. In the workplace, Christians become drunk, can become drunk with academic prestige, political power, financial success. So one is said to be drunk spiritually is to imbibe too much of the world's way of looking at things and not enough of the way God views reality. 
To be intoxicated with the world's wine is to be numb to feeling any fear in the present of a future coming judgment. Those who are asleep do not care about spiritual matters. Verse 7 is telling us even the physical acts of sleep and drunkenness take place at night so that these should not be the spiritual characteristics of those who belong to the day and night. And then verse 8 says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. And when he uses that, those uh, phrases, faith and love as a breastplate and then salvation, he's referring to Isaiah 59, in the first part of your Bible, which says this, Put on righteousness as a breastplate, and the helmet of salvation. Now, in that passage, the breastplate is righteousness. In our passages, passage, the breastplate is faith and love. What's the connection between those? Well, faith has to do with our relationship with God, and love has to do with our relationship to others. So we're to be righteous before God by faith and righteous toward people through love. And hope is the confident expectation of the consummation of our final deliverance, our salvation. Because God protects his people. And God prods his people. And lastly, God promises his people. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. For because our destiny is different from the world. We will see our final rescue, our final deliverance, which is what salvation means. Rescue, deliverance. We don't suffer the ultimate wrath because Jesus took God's wrath for us. And that's what verse 10 says. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Now, awake or asleep, whether we are asleep in death, or we're alive, either way, those who are in Christ have this safety of knowing that he has paid the price, the penalty, absorbing God's wrath so that we don't have to. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. And that phrase, sacrifice of atonement, I have in brackets there, propitiation. It means for God's wrath to be poured out upon a sacrifice And his wrath was poured out on the sacrifice of Christ for us. And as a result, verse 11, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Continue to do that. You see, friends, this is the true spiritual purpose of knowing future matters, prophetic matters. It's not so you can have charts on the wall, so you can get all wigged out about what's coming next and try to guess. It's not any of that. The true spiritual purpose for knowing prophetic matters is that we might minister effectively now in view of what one knows is certain to come later. And encourage one another then with those truths. There are at least ten major points of encouragement in this passage. We are of the day and the light. We are not of the night and darkness. We are awake and sober. We are not like the drunk and spiritually asleep. 
We will not be overtaken by the day of the Lord. We are clothed in faith, love and hope. Our destiny is God's promised salvation. Christ died for us. We will live eternally with other believers and we will live eternally with Christ. And all of that, all of that truth is designed to motivate us, to prod us, to increasingly become God's distinctive people. So I say in your take-home truth, Christians are distinct in who they are, in how they live, and in where they are going. And we're going to pray. And as we pray, Christian friend, thank God that that's true of you. And then for those of you who give no thought to these matters, I thank God that you're here. Because you're here because of God's divine appointment. God has brought you here. And God has brought you here for the purpose of awakening you to spiritual truths to which you've been asleep. And a God who loves you is coming after you in the best possible way. He's coming after you to rescue you, to deliver you. There is the wrath of God that is coming upon his world. It's a righteous wrath because he is an absolutely holy God. And all of us, all of us have violated his holy standards. We've insulted his holy character. All of us, all of us do it in various ways. It doesn't matter the ways in which we do it. We've all done it. The Bible calls it sin. And Jesus came to remedy that. Jesus lived the life that you and I were supposed to live. And he died the death that we deserve. And you escape the coming wrath only by embracing the mercy that God offers now. And he offers that mercy in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You receive what he did and you do nothing to receive it other than put out the empty hands of faith. The only thing you bring to your rescue, your deliverance, your salvation, is your sin. And you give that to Christ. And he purchases you now. Out of, the Bible says, the slave market of sin. And he brings you into his household. He adopts you into his family. He gives you his robe of righteousness. You will be his forever. Nothing can change that relationship, thanks be to God. This is your opportunity, unbelieving friend, to come out of the night and into the day, out of the darkness and into the light. And so you realize that you're a sinner. Recognize who Jesus is and what he did, culminating in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Repent means, Lord, I'm going to go your way, no longer go my way. And you receive Jesus into your life. When we bow now in just a moment, from your heart to God in your own words, you say that to him. Oh, Lord, I've been in the night. I'm a sinner. I've violated your holy character. I believe Jesus came to rescue me. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to rescue me from the coming wrath, to rescue me from my own sin. I want to follow Jesus, go his way, not my way. And then believing, friend, thank God that he's done that in your life. And commit yourself 
to showing that that's happened in your life by these distinctive traits described in 1 Thessalonians 5. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you again for gathering us and then we thank you for meeting with us, allowing us to look into your word to see truth that you have given to us for our benefit. So Lord, this is your grace to your people. And your gospel is your grace to all people. The good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so, Lord, those of us in whom you have done this work, we profoundly thank thank you. That's made a radical difference in our values and our allegiances and our priorities. You're increasingly separating us from the false values, allegiances, and priorities of the world. Lord, we are not better We recognize we are not better than anyone. But only because of your grace, we are better off. Father, we desire that others come into your family by your grace. We thank you for the privilege of extending your good news in this message and through our lives and through our testimonies in the places you've assigned to us so that others can come to know you. And Lord, in this sacred moment, we would ask you to move on the hearts of any in this room who do not have a relationship with you through the Lord Jesus. Perhaps they too are stumbling through life, not caring about these spiritual realities. Oh Lord, it will come like a thief in the night. There will be no escape, you have said. So thank you for your mercy and your love extended in this moment. Save and rescue some, and we will give you the praise and the honor for it you are doing. And we pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.